And as we uh, are set to begin our third week of Advent, I I feel like it is necessary at this point to give you both a warning and an encouragement. First, the warning that Advent is already halfway over. And as expected, every year it goes really fast, like the blink of an eye. But in that same vein, my encouragement is that Advent is only halfway over. And we still do have two weeks to make the most of a season that we always have high aspirations of as we set out, at least I do, to realign our eyes, realign our focus, our energy on this light shining into the darkness, on this Jesus Christ, and how not only when we do that, we refocus our eyes on Him, and He fills your cup, that also gives you the opportunity to see others, spend time with others, pour into others, look ways to bless and serve and lift up others in overflow of that blessing. And so uh, it's already halfway over, but it's only halfway over. And we have maybe much that the Lord wants to do in your life in the next two weeks. And, And we as a church family want to continue to anticipate what's ahead for our gatherings from here till uh Christmas. You just saw on the video there uh the uh New Jersey Homeschool Association a very talented young group of people that uses our building on Thursdays as their kind of choir uh, day in practice. They are doing a concert here uh, on Friday. Uh, The screen said 4 p.m. I believe it's 7 p.m. We'll have to confirm on that. It's 7 p.m. start here on Friday, so don't leave work early, all right? You can kind of take your time, eat some dinner, come join us here at 7 for uh, a concert. I think that's just uh, something that we enjoy doing as much as we can is singing together in the season. Just like Coco and Carol's, we had a great event yesterday. Um, But you might have gotten an email yesterday about our congregational meeting uh, that is today. Uh, That has been moved to Zoom from in person. And so it's going to be a 1.30 start time on Zoom. And that is uh, an annual meeting uh, that we want the most amount of members and leaders there. And for a variety of reasons, uh, we've come to see that in order to maximize attendance at that meeting this year, it'll be best to do it virtually. Um, So uh, at that meeting, a link will be sent out today at 12.30 for a 1.30 meeting. Um, All are welcomed and encouraged to attend. Uh, Members are expected to attend uh, because at that meeting, uh, I'm able to share and unveil the annual report Um, And I promise that is more exciting than it might sound to you right now. Uh, But we're able to go through that and then uh, look into next year and vote in new elders, um, a budget for 2022. And, uh, you know, what what I say um, uh, and try to say often is that uh, you are a citizen of heaven, but you're also a citizen of this country. And uh, voting for people in this country, including the president all the way on down to local officials, is an important thing for you to do. But it pales in comparison to the importance of you voting for elders in your local church. Uh, They both have value, but they're not the same value. And and to kind of see the importance and vitalness of that. Um, So uh, we will not consume your entire afternoon, I promise. Uh, We expect it will be about an hour um, all in. So that will start today at 1.30. Uh, Next Sunday, December 19th, we'll have our normal two services, 9 a.m., 11 a.m., Uh, The kids will be singing at the 9 a.m. 
um, and then they'll be having their own kind of celebration during kids' worship time. Uh, so parents just want to remind you of that. It's just 9 a.m. singing in kids' worship. There's no kids' worship or singing at the 11 a.m., uh, so you'll want to ensure that your kids are here for that. If you're here in person, maybe you're watching online today uh, to just make sure. I know that's a highlight for them, and to be honest, it's a highlight for us uh, as well. Moving to Christmas Eve, uh, which is on a Friday. Uh, we will have two identical services here on Christmas Eve, 3 p.m. and 5 p.m. Uh, obviously very much looking forward to that. That is a favorite service for many. Um, in terms of nursery, there will be child care through preschool, and then uh, all elementary K through fifth grade and on up will be with us in those services. There will be a children's message uh, as part of that service with Miss Megan. Um, and, and we do for nursery care for those services, uh, Megan and uh, Joy do not schedule people for that. We rely on people to volunteer for that. Um, and so uh, we have, again, two services, five nursery care workers is the need at each service. Uh, last time I checked, we need seven more, seven of the ten we still need to sign up. So there's an opportunity, obviously, with two services on Christmas Eve to serve one and attend one. No one will have to miss Christmas Eve. Um, and, you know, when I was just speaking earlier of uh, the Advent season uh, being a, a way to pour yourself out and bless others, uh, a very practical way to do that is to uh, serve here on Christmas Eve. And um, so seven more. I would love to see even more than that sign up, and we're having to turn people away. But uh, it would personally be an encouragement to me if we uh, as a church did not struggle to find people to serve on Christmas Eve. And so if you're here, you can kind of fill out a connection card. You can uh, go to the back of Grace Connect and just let them know you'd be willing to. And if there's a service you prefer or if you can do either. Um, and then if you're watching online, uh, you can uh, fill out the connection card. Um, and that has put, been put either in the chat or in the description of the YouTube video and indicate it there. Lastly, and then we'll get going, the day after Christmas, December 26th, don't come. All right, we are going to have a service, but it's going to be an entirely virtual service. It's going to be 9 a.m. We'll all be on YouTube together on Sunday, December 26th. So we will not be meeting in person um, but who knows, if you can find your way into the building and find a way to stream it on the big screen, you know, maybe you can be here Christmas on the day after, but you will be alone. Um, and so we will be all virtual for the 26th. All right, well, let's dive in to our text this morning. Again, we're in the third week of the series, An Unexpected Christmas. Week one, we unpacked unexpected ancestors, the unexpected ancestors of Jesus in the genealogy that began Matthew's gospel, uh, seeing how a perfect Savior came from a line of very much imperfect people for those imperfect people. And then in week two, last week, we saw unexpected parents of Jesus, where Joseph and Mary obeyed while in darkness because of their faith in the light. And now week three, we're going to jump to Matthew 2 to take a look at the unexpected visitors who came to see Jesus after he was born. So we're going to read the entire passage up front, and sometimes when we do that, I'm just going to ask you to stand this morning as we read our passage together. You can have your Bible in hand or uh, follow on the screen in front of us. This is a very familiar Christmas passage. Matthew 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold... 
Wise men came from the east. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Amen. You may be seated. Again, a familiar passage in the collection of Christmas stories. The wise men, we always see, play a central role in nativity scenes throughout your homes and in the areas. They play prominent roles within Christmas plays. And along with it are often some non-biblical details that we have come to always associate with them. Now, we don't need to be the Christmas tradition police. We don't have to get mad about it. But it's worth acknowledging of what we don't know about these wise men because it can distract us from the actual power and meaning of what we do know. Um, But the most common depiction of wise men is three kings from Persia. Problem is that we were never told there were three of them. Even as we sang in the first Noel this morning, you might have noticed that. Good song, keep the song, but we're never told there were three. There were three gifts, but it was likely a much larger group, which we'll get into. They were also not kings. Wise men, or sometimes they're called magi, were uh, what we would kind of think of as astrologers, or maybe even magicians that would serve as court advisors to kings. And we were told only that they are from the east. That could be Persia, but there were many other regions further to the east that they could have came from. Um, And the, the, the text tells us that they came to the house where the child was. Do you notice that? No talk of a stable, no talk of a manger. They were likely not there when Jesus was in a manger in the traditional nativity set. He was likely um, anywhere from weeks old, and maybe they had moved, and the innkeeper said, oh my gosh, I put the woman in a stable to have a baby, and they found a room for her. Uh, There are also commentators that would think that he was actually one or two years old by this time. Don't throw away your nativity set. Don't be that person on Christmas who goes to your family or friends and sees their nativity set and just throws cold water on everything, saying, you know, that's not really right. 
You'll wear your out your welcome very quickly. I don't want to be held responsible for that. You don't want to be that person. Let them enjoy their nativity set. Um, but while many of the details of what it might have looked like, how it happened, are not explicitly given, the reason why Matthew included it in his gospel is way more important. And so that's what I want to look at this morning. Why do the wise men matter? Why is this story here? I think the reasons, you can almost fail to overstate the importance of this passage. So three reasons this morning why the wise men matter. Number one, it unveils God's plan for history. Again, you can't really overstate that. It unveils God's plan for history. So the context of Matthew's original audience is, I think, as it usually is when you look at the Bible, is key to understanding the magnitude of what is being written here. Uh, Matthew, which, who is one of Jesus' 12 disciples, is writing to an early church, a local church, about 25 years after Jesus died and rose again. Um, some historians think that it was intended for a church in the city of Rome, right? the actual capital of the Roman Empire. Others think it was the ancient city of Antioch, which was 300 miles north of Jerusalem and is today in what we know as modern-day Turkey. But churches in both those cities had members with different ethnic backgrounds, from uh, Jewish and non-Jewish, or what the Bible calls Gentile backgrounds. And in the early missionary movements of the church, as it spread from the empire, from uh, Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the Roman Empire, uh, churches began to be planted in major locations, like Antioch, like Rome. And a question arose amongst those early churches. If the non-Jews who became Christians had to essentially become culturally Jewish in the process... Did they have to take on tradition, uh, kind of traditional Jewish customs like circumcision and others in order to be saved, in order to be included in the church? And that answer was solidified in Acts 15 at what we know as the Jerusalem Council. And the answer that the early church leaders came to was, was no. Jews and non-Jews are saved by faith alone in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone. And that diversity of backgrounds should be celebrated, not mitigated. But we know that it continued to be a struggle for many Jews who came to believe in Jesus. That to, to, to acknowledge that their Jewish descent did not give them priority over the Gentiles in their churches. and That those Gentiles did not have to go through the hoops to become culturally Jewish. That was a struggle for them. That was a struggle for them to kind of realize that. They'd grown their whole life thinking that they were better than the non-Jews. It was hard to now coexist as members in the same churches without this struggle. So Matthew, who is Jewish himself, right from the outset of his gospel, is showing the churches he's writing to that Jesus is the Savior for all people. And that was not plan B. It's not that God tried to do it in Israel and failed, so now he had to kind of call an audible and include everybody else. But that was the plan from the beginning. And Matthew is showing some of the kind of the, the trail marks of that in, in his genealogy, which we saw a couple weeks ago. Remember, there was non-Jews included in the family line of Jesus, like Rahab and Ruth, all the way down now through King David to Joseph and Jesus, included non-Jews in that line. And now, 
Who are the only ones in Matthew's gospel, outside of Joseph and Mary, to acknowledge and seek out the birth of the long-awaited Messiah, the King of the Jews? Non-Jews. Wise men from the East, who you, by the way, never hear about again in the New Testament. We don't never given kind of more details, but Matthew is very careful to include these 12 verses to show that it was God's plan in all of history. And where I think this just uh, is relevant for us is that, is that a breakthrough moment in my faith journey and I can, is the time that I can still remember when God opened my eyes to the fact that the Bible is one story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. Even growing up in a church that preached the gospel, I did not have the eyes to see it or, or, or like it was not maybe as explicitly shown that it's not just kind of isolated stories that are all from God, but that this, is, this Bible is one story from Genesis to Revelation. And so every story within that story, every book, every chapter, every verse of the Bible feeds into the one story. And that story can be summed up like this. The story of how God is restoring and redeeming a fallen creation through his son, Jesus Christ, for the glory of God and the gladness of the nations. Let me say that again. The one story that you see all the way throughout scripture is the story of how God is restoring and redeeming a fallen creation through his son, Jesus Christ, for the glory of God and the gladness of the nations. And that turned the lights on for me. I can almost like, not, again, overestimate how important that was because how that puts kind of everything into perspective. From Genesis to Revelation, that Jesus Christ has come for all peoples of the earth and everything up to this point in the Bible has pointed to him. But, uh, like to this birth, everything before it has kind of pointed to this moment. And then everything after this point in the Bible flows from him. So it flows to him and then it flows from him. And he stands at the center of history as God's plan to redeem and restore all that has fallen. And again, once you know that, then you go back to the Old Testament. And again, you see like, if you ever go on hikes and you see the trail markers to understand you're still on the right path. And the trail markers all the way throughout, like in Genesis 12, when God came to Abram and said, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to bless your family, so that, here's the reason, Abram, why I'm approaching you, so that all the families of the earth would be blessed through you. And at the time, you're asking, how? How is that going to happen? And then you keep tracing that path to Jesus Christ, King of the Jews, who would redeem and restore, as a Jewish man, all of humanity. And it doesn't mean you skip over Israel. It doesn't mean that Israel is just like a footnote in history, that Israel very much has a place in the redemptive storyline of Scripture, but God didn't just work in Israel for the sake of Israel. He worked through Israel to reach the world. And the wise men, being the first ones in Matthew's gospel to pursue meeting this king. It's, It's strange at first, but it cues us into the fulfillment of God's plan in the birth of his son. That's number one. That's why the wise men matter. Second reason why they matter is that it's God's purpose for our lives. It unveils God's purpose for our lives. This passage not only unfolds and points to the big picture of God's plan, but it also shows God's purpose. If you notice in the reading, there was three reactions to the birth of Jesus. 
Three reactions to the news of this arrival of a king, and I think they're pretty representative of all the responses that all people have had across the last 2,000 years to Jesus. So three responses to the king. Number one, one who was threatened by the king. You got this man Herod that Matthew talks about. Herod was appointed king of Judea, the, uh, essentially a Caesar of Rome, kind of gave him that title, allowed him that title, maybe played into his own vanity. You are the king of Judea. And he would serve under Caesar. And he came, we know historically, he came into that position in 37 B.C., the year 37 B.C. So he had been uh, ruling over this region for 33 years by the time Jesus was born. Most historians think that Jesus was born in 4 B.C. And Herod, we know historically, was a brutal leader. He executed several family members anytime he felt threatened by them. But his relationship with the Jews was actually more complicated than just being a brutal leader because he did rule over them, but he also presented himself as the protector of Judaism and sought to gain their favor. He loved architecture. He was known for building projects. If you maybe took a world history class, they called Herod, Herod the Great. Why they call him Herod the Great? Because of his great building projects, including his greatest of all. Do you remember what it was? The Jewish temple. He rebuilt and oversaw the restoration and rebuilding of the Jewish temple. Again, we're coming right off of Ezra. That was the whole point of Ezra, is rebuilding the temple. And remember, they got to the end, they were like, that wasn't, I mean, what we were expecting. The people that remembered Solomon's temple were old enough, wept when they saw the new temple because they were like, this is pretty weak. Well, Herod rebuilt the temple to even a greater splendor than the time of Solomon. And so this is why the wise men from the east get his attention when they enter Jerusalem. It's also the reason why it probably wasn't just three guys on a camel, but they probably traveled with a large entourage that included soldiers, included a small army, right? That's a dangerous, treacherous uh, travel, probably at least 900 miles, could be even thousands of miles if it was further east. So you had this entourage with a small army entering the city of Jerusalem. Herod's like, who are you? And so the king of Judea schedules a meeting with them. And while eastern astrologers or magi were not royalty, they were often adjacent to royalty. And there are historical accounts of astrologers like this seeking out royalty in other nations. And then often again being court advisors to kings in their own land. And they come to Jerusalem. Why? They're expecting to meet a king. So they're going to come to the capital and they're going to have the assumption that everyone knows about this king. It's their people. So they come into town, and they go, where's the king? And Herod's like, what king? And he sees, and like, ultimately just like, oh, what are you guys doing here? I know what you're generally about. Who are you looking for? He starts asking questions. They're asking questions. And they eventually say, we saw his star. So where is he? And in verse 3, we are told that Herod was troubled. Again, he's, he's King Herod. <laughs> That's his name. And some outsiders just came in and said, where's the king? Right? This is like a college quarterback who's an upperclassman, and he's walking around campus and realizes his coaches are taking around a new recruit. 
And he asked, who's that recruit? And they're like, oh, he's a new high school quarterback. They're hoping to get him. He's like, whoa. Or maybe at your own job, you're in the office and you're walking by and you see somebody interviewing the office and you inquire and you realize that person's interviewing for your job. Your reaction is going to be, what's going on here? Not a good sign. Herod's alarm signs are starting to go off. And he immediately, because he's crafty, you don't stay in this position for 33 years without being crafty, he sets a plan to put himself in a position where he could eliminate the threat. He asks the wise men, hey, when did you first see this star? Just curious. And he's setting a time frame in his mind, which will come back into play later in the chapter in a passage that we'll see next week. But then he also says, hey, report back when you find him. I would love to see him too. Because he is threatened by the king and wants to remove him. That's the first reaction that somebody would have to Jesus, threatened by him, so they want to remove him. But the second one, the second reaction is someone who is indifferent to the king. You could be indifferent to the king. This is the irony, I think, of the whole story. This is what's most unexpected to me. That the out-of-town visitors come to Jerusalem where the most knowledgeable and high-ranking Jews are and they ask about the birth of their own king, of their own people, indicating that they have some insight into their own culture, into their own scriptures. And we find one of the most unexpected aspects of the birth of Jesus Christ is that no one was expecting it. The Jews of the time clearly had the knowledge of the Messiah. Herod calls them in. They clearly have the insight to say, hey, yeah, he'll be born in Bethlehem. We all know that. From the tribe in the land of Judah, where he will rule over his people. They kind of understand the magnitude of who he is. And he shares that after these people are inquiring that they heard he was born. And after that, what happens? Amongst the Jews? Nothing. The Jews lived in Jerusalem. The ones that were in Jerusalem, they were six miles from Bethlehem. Six miles. That's from here to Ramsey High School. And yes, I did Google that, all right? It was three minutes of my sermon prep that I felt like was important, all right? Got to give you that context. It's from the front door to Ramsey High School. If you go at a two-mile-an-hour pace, that gets you there in an afternoon. But no one goes. No one cares. It is complete indifference. Now, you could say, well, that's just because they didn't take these wise men seriously. Who were they? What do they know? They're not even Jews. But I don't think that's the only reason. I think it is utter indifference which flows from a life that isn't looking for a Messiah to begin with. These chief priests, as we see here, had the favor of Herod. He called them in. He was kind of the right-hand guys. He rebuilt their temple. He put money in their pockets. Things are pretty good for these guys. They are living pretty large. So how could they improve from here? They already have the favor of the king. So they shrug their shoulders. They go back to business as usual. Like nothing ever happened. And you know, of those first two reactions, as we think about it in our day today, one that is threatened by and one who is indifferent to, Herod's might be the most alarming for us. But the chief priests and the scribes' reaction, to me, is the most concerning. 
Because Herod at least rightly recognized what the claim of a king means. If Jesus is king, then he is not. There can only be one king. So you need to eliminate the threat or be eliminated. It's not enough to ignore it. He had to destroy the possibility of it. There was anger at the thought or premise of there being a king that he had to submit to, an authority he had to have. And while that's an alarming response, I kind of get it. But the response of indifference amongst those who profess to be God's people, I would put it this way, language that we often use here, this is those who had the knowledge about the truth without submission to the truth. Knowledge about the truth without submission to the truth. That's a dangerous cocktail. I touched on this last week, but even today, there's two ways to not follow God that, again, we see in this passage. One is just to not believe in him. It is outward rejection that Jesus is the Son of God. Outward rejection that they are in need of saving. And the denial of a king and having to submit to that authority in their lives. Outward rejection, destroy it at all costs. The idea of not being in control themselves. A professing non-Christian that does not believe or follow God. That is alarming, but to me, honestly, it's not the most concerning. The most concerning are not those who do not believe in Jesus and do not follow Jesus. The most concerning and even confusing are the ones who profess to believe who know about the truth, or maybe even gifted in proclaiming the truth, but have no desire to submit to the truth. They could tell you about Jesus. They could tell you about the meaning of Christmas. They can, again, even have giftings in sharing it with other people, but their lives are indifferent to the king. They're the king of their own lives. And that what you see in the fruit of the way they live and their character and the way they treat others, speak to others, talk about others. There's nothing in what they do or, or that, that, that they love or cherish Christ or, or prioritize them in their life. It's just all knowledge. It's the difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. Where there's no functional difference with the way that they live between them and a non-believer that's the most concerning because they're self-deceived. Which leads to now the third reaction, and the one we want to zone in on, is the worship of the king. Verse 10 again, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Their eyes set on the child, and their hearts were filled with great joy. You see kind of the language that Matthew's using here? They rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Hard to overstate it. But they put aside their pride. They put aside their pretense. They don't care what it looks like. They bow down, and they worship the king. And while it's doubtful that these wise men knew exactly who Jesus was, it's doubtful that they knew exactly what Jesus was going to do in his life and the kind of death he would die. It's doubtful that, but possible that they knew he was fully man and fully God, here to save his people from their sins, as the angel told Joseph. Their response of worship does represent God's purpose for your life. 
Their response of worship does represent God's purpose for your life. For, for the heart that truly sees Jesus, meaning the one who sees him as the eternal son of God who, who loved the world so much that he sent him to die after living a life of perfect obedience, a life that we couldn't live. And then that death representing the death that we deserve to die. That, that heart that sees that, that doesn't just know about it, doesn't just give the right answers, can't just explain it, but the heart that sees that cannot help but be drawn to him in worship of the king. Cannot help but to submit to him as Lord. And that is done imperfectly and you don't have it all on day one. But there's a drawing to it, like a gravitational pull of that kind of love. And our purpose is to worship God. To glorify God. Not in begrudging submission because my parents told me I have to. Not in begrudging submission so that God will reward me at the end of my life. But this, this humble gladness putting aside pride, putting aside pretense. I don't care what it looks like. I'm following him. And if you're a believer this morning and you're not of Jewish descent, you stand in line with these magi, those who have been invited in, those who have been grafted into the covenant by the blood of Jesus. And that worship, that worship day to day does not get you saved, doesn't impress God, or it's not meant to impress others. It is the result of, again, seeing with your heart the gift of salvation by faith in Christ. And I know many of us wrestle with our purpose in this world. Where am I supposed to go? Who am I supposed to marry? What should I study? Should I change jobs? Should I move to that city? Should I talk to that neighbor? We, we think about purpose far more than we admit. And those are not bad questions to ask and wrestle through. But you could get to even a really kind of existentialist point where you're like, what's the point of this all? Due to maybe hurt you've experienced in the world. Due to hurt maybe you've experienced in the church where you feel like I'm walking in this fog of confusion, and where do I go from here? Your purpose is not primarily to do great things for God. Your purpose is to worship and make much of a great God who did things for you and what he has done for you. It's the second reason why the wise men matter his plan over history, his purpose in our lives. Then number three, we're going to kind of end and tie it together with this. Number three, the wise men matter because of God's providence over our lives in history. Hang with me. God's providence over our lives in history. There's one more aspect of this passage I want to finish with. There's a question, again, I tell you often when I'm reading, I'm always just like writing questions in the margins as I'm studying, trying to ask questions of the text. One question that emerges from this text for me how did the wise men know to look for a star that would lead to the king of the Jews? How did they know? What started it for them? Again, for them, it was not a six-mile walk on a Monday afternoon. For them, it was thousands of miles, dangerous. How did they know to look for it? And when they saw it, how did they know to follow it? I think it's clear that some kind of unmistakable astronomical message propelled them to make this long, dangerous journey to a foreign land. But how did they connect that to the Jewish people as non-Jews themselves? 
Again, I don't want to write in reasons that the Bible doesn't explicitly tell us, but I think the Bible tells us a little bit more than we initially realize. This is where the Old Testament, everything feeding up to him. You go back 500 years from this moment. During the time that the Jews were in exile in the land of Babylon, which was to the east, about 900 miles from Jerusalem, under King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar started having some disturbing dreams, and nobody can interpret them. Except who? A young Jewish man named Daniel. He was able to interpret and help the nation of Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar raised him in the ranks within his own government. And then in Daniel chapter 5, King Nebuchadnezzar's son was on the throne. And he started having some issues, some bad dreams. And this old advisor who used to advise his daddy when his daddy was king said, Hey, you know, there was this man named Daniel. And he was the one whom, in chapter 5, verse 11, says, your father, the fa- your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers because of an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding. Paraphrase, Daniel was in charge of the wise men. And Daniel, along with the other Jews in exile, likely would have shared truth of their Jewish scriptures, Traditions, prophecies, including many of the messianic passages from Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet around the same time, and a lot of those most explicit Christmas messianic prophecies are found in Isaiah. And further, we know that not all the Jews returned from exile. Some had remained in Babylon. Maybe some even traveled further east took with them their teachings of the Jewish scripture that would spread. Maybe that's why the wise men 500 years later in their own tradition had this knowledge, knew to look for something that then God used in his own providence to draw them to Jerusalem. What's this mean for us? Here's what I think it means. The New Testament today refers to the church as citizens in exile. For those who were redeemed and restored by Christ, yet still live in a fallen, sinful world as we await his return. So the purpose of our lives is to worship him as king. And the mission of our lives is to participate in God's plan of redemption in all of history by being sent to make disciples of all nations. That's what Jesus said at the end of John. He said, as the Father sends me, so I send you, church. To be the hands and feet, to be positioned between the person and work of Jesus Christ and the salvation of the whole world. You cannot overstate the mission of the church and its importance in redemptive history. David Platt, an author, pastor that I know many of you are familiar with, says it like this. At the beginning of Matthew, the message to the nations is clearly to come and see the king. And at the end of Matthew, Jesus tells his disciples to go and spread the kingdom to the nations. Joyfully offer your life as a worshiper and then passionately spend your life as a witness. Church, never underestimate routine, daily faithfulness to the mission of the kingdom.
whether it's in your living room with your small children, whether it's in your cubicle with your coworkers, whether it's in your church as you teach in kids' worship, as you guide and teach in nursery, as you participate with our youth ministry, as you bear witness to an unbelieving world in your neighborhood in word and deed, do not overestimate what the people of God in exile can do for the kingdom and bring about God's redemptive plan. You might not see the fruit it might not surface for 500 years. Just as the fruit of, that's being born in your life right now, you believing in Christ, you, you trusting in Christ, you now helping others believe in Christ, that fruit that's being shown in you can be traced back hundreds of years by those who influenced 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 you. And back and back it goes with the sovereign God orchestrating all of it. Daniel was chief of the Magi, and then a million things happened from there over the next 500 years, leading to the moment that this Magi group came upon the house with the Savior. God led them to Jesus, but he providentially used people in the process. And in the same way, we trust that God is still leading people to Jesus, don't we? Isn't that our hope in life and death? That God's still leading people to Jesus and he is using people like you to play a part in the process, not only in our generation, but in the unseen generations ahead. Let's be those people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story of the wise men. Forgive us for how easily we gloss over it as a children's story involved in a great collection of Christmas stories, Lord. Forgive us for treating these just as figures that make us smile and that we literally put back in the box till next year. Father, give us the eyes to see their importance. Give us the eyes to see our story involved in their story under the umbrella of your story. We thank you how you have led us to Jesus through maybe unlikely and unexpected circumstances, some we know and way more that we don't. And Father, give us the motivation, the desire and the love for this world that you have, that we get to play a part in your plan across history, Lord. Let it move us today, Lord. Let us see that there's no such thing as a normal day in the kingdom of God. There is no such thing as mundane as your people. Give us courage for daily faithfulness and let us trust the fruit to you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, let's go ahead and stand and sing fittingly, Joy to the World.